So before I speak, let's just pray together. So let's pray. So Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that the entrance of your word gives light. And we pray now that you come by your Holy Spirit and that you might shine the light of Christ in our hearts and minds. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. So the title, as you can uh, see uh, behind me, Tipping Points, um, The Reformation in Europe. I'm a bit of a fan of social media. I'm going to sh share, first of all, a Facebook post um, that I, I put on my Facebook earlier this year. And as you can see, it says, it's been announced that Pope Francis will make Martin Luther a saint on October the 31st to commemorate 500 years since the Reformation. It was on October the 31st, 1517, that Martin Luther nailed a list of grievances against the Catholic Church onto the door of a chapel in Wittenberg, Germany. The 95 Theses became the catalyst for the Protestant Reformation. And uh, there he is in uh, stained glass, uh, St. Martin Luther. Anyway, some of my friends uh, put various posts on it. You know, you can add your own posts. And they put, praise the Lord, isn't this fantastic unity at last or something like this. Uh, but they failed to notice uh, the date, which you might see just under my name there, which is April the 1st. And um, when you click on uh, that, the link that's there, it takes you to a spoof magazine called Liturgy, Pope Francis to make Martin Luther a saint on October the 31st. And as you re read the article, it goes, uh, an first paragraph, an embittered uh, Vatican insider um, has leaked the document that Pope Francis has been working on together with Lutheran leaders. And it talks about the, the, the plan to canonise uh, Martin Luther to make him a saint. But as, uh, as you can see, it says A-P-R-I-L. So it's, it spells, each paragraph spells April Fool down the side. Well, some of my friends fell for that, um, uh, good and proper. And it just goes to uh, prove the adage true that if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Well, we're here um, over these few days to commemorate uh, a man of God who certainly made a stand. He made a stand uh, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And just as RT reminded us in his talk last night, when he covered a lot of the biographical details to do with Luther's life, one of the key moments in his life uh, was at the Diet of Worms in 1520, when Luther, Luther was required uh, to recant his, uh, his convictions, and he made the famous statement that's gone down in history, here I stand, I can do no other. But the title uh, today is, uh, that I'm thinking about is uh, uh, Tipping Points. And um, that phrase, tipping point, became, you may um, be familiar with it. It's, it became famous, particularly with Malcolm Gladwell's um, book, uh, which was published in the year 2000. And the subtitle of his book was How Little Things Can Make a Big Difference. You see, every story has a tipping point. And when it comes to the story of the Reformation, if we were to pinpoint um, a tipping point, uh, the tipping point would be when uh, Luther made that first protest that uh, RT was reminding us about last night when he went uh, to the castle church um, in Wittenberg and um, he nailed these 95 um, 
theses to the, to the church door there. Um, that was the, um, the tipping point. Now, a, a definition of a tipping point is not the, um, necessarily when a new idea comes, but actually when that almost becomes an unstoppable momentum and that idea cannot be stopped. And Luther's thinking, a lot of Luther's thinking uh, was not new. Um, it was predated by other uh, people. Artie mentioned um, Huss uh, last night, Jan Huss, but closer to home, um, there's our very own John Wycliffe. And the college that I'm going to be a lecturer at on, on faculty of uh, Wycliffe Hall, Oxford, bears his name. It's named after him. So uh, here's, here's the stained glass window in the chapel at Wycliffe Hall, uh, Oxford, where I first heard R.T. preach all those years ago. And it commemorates this guy, John Wycliffe. And John, Wyc John Wycliffe was master of one of the Oxford colleges. He was master of Balliol College, Oxford, 1328 through to 1384. Um, a scholar at Oxford, as I say, at Balliol College, Oxford, uh, John Wycliffe referred to as the morning star of the Reformation because many of the ideas that, we, uh, we came, that came to be associated with the Reformation, some of those ideas, Luther had them first. Uh, for example, he believed that the Bible, uh, not the church, should be regarded as the supreme source for authority uh, for Christians. He denounced um, bishops and other clergy for amassing wealth and neglecting their spiritual duties. And he and his followers made the first translation of the Bible into English, something that Luther uh, was to do much later. But let's get back to that tipping point that we're commemorating, which is uh, Luther's protest that we commemorate uh, on the 31st of October, uh, this month, uh, the 500th anniversary of that. Um, this that you can see um, behind me is an early copy of Luther's uh, 95 uh, Theses. Uh, you, you might notice that they're written in Latin. The lingua franca of uh, 16th century German scholars, it was not intended to be a popular treatise. This changed, however, when they were translated into German and they were distributed um, around the country. Um, this wasn't the first time that Luther had nailed arguments to the church door. It was the community bulletin uh, board for idea exchange. But it was the first time that he mentioned money and the sale of indulgences, which certainly drew the attention of the church hierarchy. And this tipping point changed everything. The author, Victor Hugo, uh, famously said this, there's nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. And it seems that this was God's moment uh, when some of these ideas, uh, which were uh, to, to call the Christian church back to its apostolic origins, that time had come. I saw this uh, cartoon on the internet when I was doing my... Uh, preparation. I don't always nail things to doors, uh, but when I do, stuff happens. And certainly, uh, stuff happened on this particular occasion. Let me quote from um, Mark Knoll. You may have come across him. He's a, an American um, theologian, uh, uh, historic theologian. And um, uh, Mark Knoll says this. Uh, he says, it was only when Luther began to protest against current church practices 
um, that, he, um, that he thought obscured the free gift of grace to be found through faith in Christ, that his private discoveries led to public antagonism. As a prime example, the protest of his 95 theses against the selling of indulgences in 1517 made him a figure of instant controversy. Not so much because of the theology underlying the theses, but because um, important church officials, including the Pope, received a share of the monies raised by indulgent sales. So that was uh, the thing that provoked the ire, um, the irritation of the church hierarchies of the day. Well, I think we need to, to provide perhaps a little bit of an ecclesiastical glossary, a bit of a Catholic glossary in terms of some of these terms um, that we're using during these uh, few days. So one of the purposes of indulgences was to shorten the time in purgatory. So uh, let's uh, look at that then. So purgatory, it's from the Latin uh, purgatorium. Um, purgatory is an intermediate state, it's believed to be an intermediate state after physical death in which some of those ultimately destined for heaven must first undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. Entrance into heaven uh, requires the remission before God of the temporal punishment due to venial sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, um, for which indulgences may be given. So already in the definition, there's other words, other terms that are being uh, used here, such as this one, uh, temporal punishment. Well, what, what's all that about? Well, temporal punishment uh, is a punishment for sin that according to Roman Catholic doctrine may be expiated, may be uh, covered, done away with, uh, in this world, or if not sufficiently expiated here, will be exacted in um, purgatory. And indulgences, what's an indulgence? A grant by the Pope of remission um, of the temporal punishment in purgatory, still due for sins after absolution, priestly absolution. The unrestricted sale of indulgences by pardoners was a widespread abuse during the Middle Ages. And I mentioned, um, or, or the definition rather, mentioned venial sin. So let's look at that one while, while we're on the case. According to Roman uh, Catholic teaching, a venial sin is a lesser sin that does not result in a complete separation from God and eternal damnation in hell as an unrepented mortal sin would. So as you see, it's quite a complex uh, system that some of the scholastics and medieval theologians had come up with. And many people suppose today, well, of course, this is all 500 years ago. Uh, this isn't relevant today. This is not a reflection of um, con contemporary Roman Catholicism at all. But actually, if we were to think that, we'd be uh, mistaken. Indulgences very much are still part of Roman Catholic doctrine. They've not been uh, done away with. So here's an article uh, from January the 15th, 2016, and it asks the question, is Pope Francis too indulgent with indulgences? And the article uh, goes on to say, Pope Francis has fascinated the public in large part because of how willingly he upends long-standing traditions and promotes a revolution of tenderness to set the Catholic Church on a new, more pastoral course for a new, more merciful era. To help fulfil this vision, Francis is also relying on old-fashioned ritual, indulgences. They're a way of winning remission from penance in this life or in purgatory. 
The most recent example of the Pope's penchant for indulgences was his announcement of a special holy year or jubilee dedicated to, to the theme of mercy and featuring a variety of ways for pilgrims to receive indulgences. So indulgences very much uh, are still in place. Uh, one thing that has changed, however, is the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, abolished the practice of selling indulgences in 1567. That was allowed, it was legitimate, but that was abolished in 1560, uh, 1567, although, in fact, the, the practice of selling them did continue beyond then. Uh, and it was finally in 1967, as late as 1967, um, that Pope Paul VI stated that indulgences were not about forgiving sin or getting out of purgatory, but rather encouraging good works. And the reason he said that is that uh, instead of payment, um, the indulgences that uh, Catholics are given to lessen their time in purgatory now is often uh, to engage in good works or to do set times of disciplined prayer. So um, modified uh, slightly, there's no selling of indulgences, but indulgences are still part of Catholic teaching to this day. Well, what I'm going to do for this session is home in uh, particularly on Luther's radical um, document, these 95 theses that were nailed to the church door 500 years ago. And uh, you'd be glad to know we're not going to be looking at all uh, 95 in these two sessions. We'd be here all day. And uh, not only are we not, uh, would we be here all day, but many of them would seem a little bit obscurantist to us. Um, Luther very much um, at this stage was still enmeshed within Catholic tradition, uh, what he was seeking to do uh, was reform um, the Catholic Church, the medieval Catholic Church of his day. And what we deal with in uh, the 95 Theses is an example, in many ways, of primitive Lutheran, Lutheranism. Uh, that is to say, not primitive in the sense of being backward, but primitive in the sense of it being uh, an early and less developed example of Luther's work. But I think it's a fascinating document, and uh, because it's uh, quite obtuse and obscurantist, lots of people uh, don't read the 95 Theses or they can't make head nor tail of them. But actually, what they contain is the seedbed uh, for reform thought that, that Luther would take forward, and indeed, uh, some of the uh, reformers after Luther would, would develop and advance um, even further. So that's what we're going to. Uh, be looking at this morning in these uh, two sessions um, and I've picked out 12 uh, of the 95 um, uh, theses I've picked out uh, 12 to look at in some detail and so here we go 12 ideas that changed the world and uh, the first uh, what we're going to do with each of those I've for each of the uh, 12 um, of the 95 theses that I've picked out um, I'm going to share what it is in, uh, in, in Old English as it's been translated from the German. Uh, I'm going to give a contemporary, um, a contemporary translation of that. But across the top in brown is my own paraphrase. In other words, as I've looked and studied these 95 theses, theses afresh, what I believe um, is, the, is the biblical truth, the truth that Luther was rediscovering the truth that the medieval church needed to rediscover 500 years ago, and the truth, dare I say, 
that we as a church, a global church, and one denomination isn't particularly at fault here, we as, a, as contemporary Christians, 500 years on, in the year 2017, are in danger of forgetting. Um, the spiritual amnesia has set in, and we're in danger of forgetting some of these uh, truths. And so that's what we're going to uh, be looking at. Uh, so 12 ideas then that change um, the world. I've, I've um, picked uh, number one and number 95, because I thought it would be good to bookend with uh, the, the, first, the first one, um, of the 95 thesis and 95, and I've picked v various ones in between. And I've sought to make it applied as well, uh, so that we can recognise uh, that this stuff isn't just abstract theology for, for seminaries or for theologians, but actually this stuff um, is theology that changes lives. One of my favourite quotes is uh, to do with applied theology is from Wesley, John Wesley, um, born 1703, died 1791, obviously the great uh, Anglican evangelist who uh, le led to the foundation of the Methodist movement, the Methodist church as we, as we, now, as we now know it today. And uh, Wesley once said this, that all uh, divinity is practical divinity. Well, Wesley didn't have that phrase, applied theology, in his day, and practical divinity is pretty much the same thing. That's uh, um, his version of what we now call applied theology. All uh, divinity, all true divinity, is practical divinity. Uh, so all theology um, should um, enable us to, um, to have our lives transformed um, in a way uh, that we... Um, that we honour honor God with our lives and uh, we look more like the holy God we serve as he reveals himself in Jesus Christ. So let's get in then to these uh, uh, 95 theses and let's look at um, number one to start with. And um, so it's this. So in grey is, is the actual uh, 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 thesis from, from uh, Luther. So num number one then, one of his 95. He said this, when our Lord and Master... Uh, Jesus Christ said, repent, Matthew 4, verse 17. He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Uh, so that's the, um, that's the, uh, uh, um, the thesis in, uh, in classic English. And what I said I'd do is give a contemporary translation, because some of them are a bit difficult to understand. And I'm using a whole set of contemporary translations from uh, a guy called C.N. Truman. And this is what, this is what, he, um, this is what he translates this as. When Jesus said repent, he meant that believers should live a whole life repenting. Well, what Luther was getting at here was a mistranslation of the Latin uh, Vulgate. The, the Bible wasn't available in the language of the people in German until Luther uh, set, about, set about that task himself. The, the Bible was translated into Latin. Um, it was the preserve of the priests. In fact, not even all the priests could, could understand the Bible. Some of the priests were uh, illiterate and couldn't understand the Bible themselves even. Um, and in some ways, the Latin Vulgate was a bit of a mistranslation. And this particular um, verse, Matthew 4, verse 17, instead of being translated, um, um, repent, uh, here's, here's the verse, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In the Latin Vulgate, what it said is, from this time on, Jesus began to preach, uh, do penance, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. 
Now, obviously, translated as it was, as do penance, you can imagine those people who had access to the Scriptures, how they interpreted it. They simply saw it as confirming the medieval doctrine of what's sometimes called oracular confession, that is, confession of one's sins to a priest to receive priestly absolution. And uh, what Luther is making his point here, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, um, that's not what he meant at all. He meant the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It reminds me of a, a little ditty that I heard years ago that went like this. A Christian is a man who is repentant on a Sunday for what he did on Saturday night and intends to do on Monday. Luther's getting away from this idea of repentance just being a formal thing, you know, such as uh, the, the sacrament of penance as it was understood and still is understood by the Catholic Church. He's saying, no, no, it's much more to do with the heart uh, when, we, uh, when we acknowledge our sin before God. Uh, the word is metanoia, when we turn around from that which we know uh, to be sinful, that which falls short of God's perfect standards, and we look into the face of a holy God and acknowledge that we fall far short of his standards of goodness and truth and justice and perfection. So uh, what Luther is saying, and this is my paraphrase in the brown at the top there, um, true repentance is a non-negotiable of the gospel. Um, we need to rediscover the heart of what true repentance is all about, not just this formal version of repentance, which is what it had become for many people. But you know, if that was true in Luther's day, how much more is that true today? True repentance is a non-negotiable of the gospel. I come across um, uh, writers, uh, Christian preachers, who say that actually uh, repentance, there's one, one uh, uh, famous evangelical author wrote a book a few years ago, and he said, oh, repentance, he said, it's nothing to do with sin, it's just about uh, changing your mind. Now, of course, that's partly true. The word metanoia literally means uh, to change your mind, but it means a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of direction. It can't be divorced from ethics or morality, but this uh, evangelical author would say, oh, it's nothing to do with morality. And his argument was this, is, uh, you know, the world has got enough bad news. People know they're sinful already. They don't need reminding anymore uh, that they're sinful. And so what, you, what you, you're left with is, is a, a gospel minus repentance, which, of course, is no gospel at all. William Booth, uh, the great and godly founder of the Salvation Army, he famously uh, said these words um, about not this century that we're in now, but the last century, which have proved to be prophetic, in my opinion. I consider the chief dangers which confront the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without generation, politics without God, and heaven without hell. It's prophetic, isn't it? It's, it's absolutely right. This is the kind of deconstructed Christianity, if we can call it that, that we're seeing um, in, in many sections of the Christian church today. We need to rediscover that true repentance is a non-negotiable of the gospel. Okay, the uh, second uh, thesis that I've picked is number six. So it's going on from number one to number six now. And uh, let me read um, it from Luther, first of all, which is in the grey. The Pope cannot remit any guilt except by declaring and showing 
that it has been remitted by God, or to be sure by remitting guilt in cases reserved to his judgment. If his right to grant remission in these cases were disregarded, the guilt would certainly remain unforgiven. So the modern translation of that um, from um, the uh, gentleman that I mentioned earlier goes like this. Only God can forgive. The Pope can only reassure people that God uh, will do this. Do you know, a few years ago, I was a, a prison chaplain and uh, I was a chaplain of a young offenders institution in Bristol, just outside, just outside Bristol. And uh, we, we, it was a privilege, to, a privilege to see a, a real move of God. And many of these young offenders came to Christ. In fact, in about two years, we saw 500, uh, about 500 young men um, give their lives to Christ. It was a really exciting time. And uh, one of the things that was disheartening sometimes is occasion, sometimes some of these guys who'd given their lives to Christ, uh, they'd get out... Uh, and they'd commit a crime, and they'd be, come back in. And uh, so even though they'd given their lives to Christ, they were uh, back in prison again. And uh, I did what I could to try and uh, to, do, uh, to encourage them to, to, uh, get, to find a local church. And I remember, you know, I sometimes say to them, you know, when you get on the out, um, you know, go and find a church, go and be part of a church. And there was one episode, I remember, when this young guy, this young man, he'd, he'd given his life to Christ, he got out, and sure enough, a few months later, he was back in. The uh, technical term for that is recidivism. Um, you know, he, he was reoffending. The reoffending rate is pretty high, as you probably know. He was back in the prison. And um, I sat there as his chaplain with my clerical collar on. Uh, and, I, I, and I said to him, you know, Pete, what happened to you? And he said, oh, he's done, I messed up again. He said, I'm back in. And I, you know, and I uh, sort of said, oh, you know, talked to him a little bit further about that. And then he said this. He said, but he said... Um, he said, Rev, I did what you said. I went to find a church. And um, he said, uh, I did just what you said. And he said, uh, I was in my town. And he said, there was a, there was a church and the light was on. It was, it, was, it was dark. It was at night. And the light was on. And I went into the church, he said. And he said, uh, it, was all, it was all dark in the church. And he said, it was something really weird, he said. He said, uh, people, there were not many people there. But people were, were sat on a bench queuing up to talk to the vicar in a box. This is, this is what he said. And I said, really? Really? Yeah, they were talking the vicar in a box. And he said, so I, so I got on the bench and he said, I waited my turn. And he said, uh, and then he said, I went in the box and, <laughs> and chat, to chat to the vicar. And the vicar said, what sins have you got to confess? And, uh, and I said, I, I haven't got any sins to confess. <laughs> so, it's what he said. And then um, and he said, then the vicar said to me, what are you here for then? And he said, well, he said, the, uh, the vicar in prison, he told me to come. He, he borned me again. That's, that, that was the phrase he used. He borned me again, and he told me to come here. And uh, anyway, obviously, I laugh because, you know, this was, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting how people completely unchurched, they cease some of our straight, always this Catholic tradition of confession, oracular confession, as it's sometimes uh, called. But it's funny, you know, this, seeing it through the eyes of uh, someone who's completely unchurched um, and that kind of, that kind of thing. This statement here by Luther, what he's, what he's saying here is not that it's wrong for a priest to say absolution, but when a priest says absolution, it's only good if the priest is declaring the absolution that God has already effected. That's basically what he's saying. He's getting away from any objective idea of, of absolution, that the Pope or indeed priests can forgive sins and actually they have intrinsic power to forgive sins. You know, how can a, a man uh, know the heart of, a, of an individual, whether someone's truly repentant or, the, or they're not? 
And this actually, this idea that it's okay for a priest to, to declare God's forgiveness, not to do the forgiving, but to declare God's forgiveness. Um, this is part of the Lutheran and indeed the Anglican tradition. I'm ordained into the Anglican tradition. And actually, this is one of the things that has now become part of Catholic doctrine. So have, there have been some changes. Um, and uh, this is now post-Vatican II is, is part of official Catholic doctrine that priests are declaring the forgiveness um, that is already... But notice, I've, I've paraphrased this, uh, perhaps you, you think strangely, is you are not God. Uh, because at the end of the, the day, that's what he's saying here, is that uh, ultimately forgiveness is God's alone, and actually it's not for any man or woman, any human being, to do what only God can do. You are not God. That's the ultimate idolatry, isn't it? Thinking that we are God. It's the, it's the original sin, uh, isn't it? Assuming that we, in some ways, uh, are on a par with God. You are not God. So the thing to do is recognise that God is sovereign. That's implicit in this. And that our task is to simply follow on what God is doing, to speak God's words after him. Um, last night, R.T. quoted uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, 1703, died in 1758, and it, saying the task of the church in any generation, every generation, is to find out what the sovereign Lord is doing and join in. So that's uh, um, our, uh, number six of, um, of Luther's um, theses. Let's move on uh, to 27 then. A bit of a jump uh, to 27. Let's look at it in, in uh, Luther's one in, in grey as before. It says this, They preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clinks into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. And um, this needs a bit of back, backstory, needs a bit of explanation. And um, let me give the modern, the modern translation, um, um, as I'm doing for each one, uh, which is this, in this case, it is nonsense to teach that a dead soul in purgatory can be saved by money. So they preach that human doctrines, uh, only human doctrines, who say that as soon as uh, money clinks into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. Well, I already mentioned, didn't I, that these indulgences... Uh, which is getting time off purgatory, shortening your time in purgatory so that you can accelerate the time when you're in heaven. It was legitimate Catholic practice um, in the day to, uh, to sell these indulgences. And, um, and there was a, a whole, wholesale abuse of this. But Luther came into, um, into, into conflict, uh, in particular with one uh, man, uh, Tetzel, uh, Johann Tetzel, who was um, a Catholic priest, who seemed to have uh, a roaring trade in these um, sales of indulgences. There's a picture of him there. And um, as you can see, he's got a, um, um, his, his box there collecting, um, collecting his money. Um, Tetzel overstated um, Catholic doctrine in regard to indulgences for the dead. He became known for a couplet attributed to him as soon as a co coin in the coffer rings the soul from purgatory springs it's not extraordinary but this is, this is a fact he was going around this uh, this priest was going around selling indulgences with his little collection box getting people to kiss relics that supposedly the um, relics from some saint often sheep's bones and uh, things like that and he had this little ditty as soon as a coin you know give us give us your money um, you know he was um, the original ext extreme prosperity gospel in terms of the extreme sense 
Um, you know, all denominations welcome here, tens, twenties, thirties, you know the idea. Um, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. So that's what um, Luther is referring to here when he says they preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clinks into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. But what is the principle, the principle that we can take away from this, that we can extract, um, and it's there um, in the Brown, in my, my paraphrase, which says this, beware of human doctrines that contradict Holy Scripture. Um, it was Jesus' warning to the Pharisees of his day, and it's just as relevant for us today as it was uh, 2,000 years ago. Um, just at the end of the summer, I took a wedding uh, up in Northumberland. Uh, this couple from St. Michael of Belfry, John and Amy, uh, got married. And it was the, it was a, I've been ordained 21 years now, and it was a bit of a first in terms of weddings that I've, that I've t officiated at, uh, partly because the best man was John's dad. It was quite sweet. He asked his old man, he asked his father to be um, his best man. But it was a, a first for another reason, and, and that is because I was, I was there at the front of the, ch the church, uh, um, Amy came in dressed beautifully as, a, as a, you can see there in that photograph beautiful bride and um, John's dad his best man was flanking him and there was a bit of a skirmish during the first hymn in which John's dad said to his son he said you've got the rings haven't you you know the rings for the wedding and John thought his dad was joking and he said no no dad come on you don't pull my you know don't pull my leg this is this the wedding had begun this in the first hymn um, you've got the rings haven't you and, uh, and he goes, no, no, you got... And he, sure enough, his dad hadn't got the rings. His dad had lost the rings. And um, uh, I, by the way, I was blissfully unaware of all this go, going on. I was in Vicar's Zone somewhere. But, um, and so his dad began to think, oh, I need two rings. I need two rings for the, for the, for the wedding. And so he, he turned to his wife and he said, give me a wedding ring. And he wasn't wearing a wedding ring. So give me a wedding ring. So uh, um, John's mum's wedding ring was press ganged into service for her daughter-in-law. It gets confusing. Um, and then he, he couldn't find another one, and so he turned to his, his other son, and he said, give me a key ring, and he gave him a rusty old key ring. <laughs> and uh, these, when I said, I, I, was, I was oblivious about this, so I said, uh, could I please have the ring? So I put the prayer book down, and um, the, um, these two rings <laughs> were presented, and um, that's John's mum's wedding ring down below. But I'll give you a, a zoom in. Uh, that's the key ring, the rusty old key. I didn't even notice. And you know, in the Anglican prayer, prayer book, there's a blessing. So I said, Lord, may, um, uh, Lord, bless these rings and may they be a symbol of unending love and faithfulness to remind them of the vow and covenant that they've made. So I blessed a rusty old key ring and John's mum's ring that was all, anyway, it was all, all very confusing. Anyway, uh, uh, we sort of, we, the wedding pro progressed. I assured the, the the groom's father afterwards, it was all perfectly legal. He was worried in case it wasn't canonically legal, it was. Anyway, just a, a week ago, just a week ago, John and Amy came to church at St. Michael the Belfry, and um, I got them up in my sermon, and they had the proper wedding rings on now, and I said a prayer of blessing over the uh, proper wedding rings. And everybody laughed, because when I said a prayer of blessing over the proper wedding rings, I said, Lord, and I cancel the prayer over the <laughs> other one. And uh, people thought that was a bit surprising. And uh, anyway, I put it on Facebook, and um, I, put it on, I put it on my Facebook that I said I'd cancel the prayer on the other ring. And John Drain, a friend of mine, you may have heard of me, he's a theologian, John Drain said, uh, so does the rusty key ring still have a blessing on it, or has it now been transferred? <laughs> to which I said, ha, 
When I prayed for the real ones on Sunday night, I said, Lord, I cancel the prayer on the other rings. That should have done the trick, I think, John, um, is what I said. Now, obviously, um, I'm being slightly flippant because actually what I'm not into is kind of any um, magic priestly sacerdotalism where the priest has power to bless in any ob ob objective sense. And, but the interesting thing was, is this post where obviously I was making light of, you know, cancelling the prayer of blessing, I got a private post from uh, a trainee vicar, this is on Facebook, they'd seen this, this is a, a woman who's training to be a priest in the Church of England, and she sent, she sent me um, a private post, and it says this, Greg, she said, hi Greg, can I ask a theology question? I'm in the middle of a module on life events, and so particularly noticed your comments about blessing of wedding rings, specifically your statement about praying a cancellation of the uh, previous blessing, that, and that should do the trick. Um, is it possible, permissible to do that? Obviously, she's asking me because I'm a seminary professor. Is it possible, uh, permissible to do that? Would this not sound like witchcraft, casting out spells or cancelling each other out? Not trying to be harsh, but when I asked the question of Google, witchcraft and Islam were the only things I could find. So, uh, anyway, I'd, uh, I've not yet replied to this, sister. Um, but I suggest she is perhaps a little bit guilty of um, buying a little bit too much into the traditions of men and not applying Holy Scripture. See, beware of uh, human doctrines that contradict um, Holy Scripture. Um, superstition and um, that kind of thing, it's, it's alive and well today, even in 2017. Okay, let's look at uh, one last one uh, before we break. Okay, obsession uh, with money. Oh, no, no, let's look at the, um, the format we're using is looking at uh, Luther's Thesis. We've, we've skipped on now to number 28. And uh, again, he's referring to Tetzel and these sales of indulgences. And he says this, It is certain that when money clinks in the money chest, greed and avarice can be increased. But when the church intercedes, the result is in God's hands. So Luther is saying, rather than selling indulgences... If people's, because uh, he's, he's, he's not um, as reformed as he was later on at this stage, if he's saying rather than selling indulgences, if indeed souls do need some assistance to speed their way through purgatory, surely prayer is the thing that makes a difference. That's what he's saying. Uh, so let me give the, the modern translation of this. Money causes greed. Only God can save souls. And there um, is, in the brown is my... Is my um, um, paraphrase of this which is trying to get to the the truth of this that's applicable for us obsession with money brings greed but obsession with prayer can bring supernatural results and that's uh, a word uh, for us as well isn't it one of the things that luther was railing against uh was um that that religion christianity in this case had been uh, had been twisted distorted perverted uh, to make people wealthy. Um, grace was being sold, fulfilling the age-old sin of simony, the selling of the Holy Spirit. Grace is not for sale, is what Luther um, was saying. But perhaps this is a word to the wise for us uh, today. I would say that there's the, the excesses, and I'm choosing my words carefully, the excesses of the prosperity gospel that can indeed fall into this trap. And I choose my words carefully because I sometimes say, I've said it to Michael Belfry, I'm not into... Um, uh, the excesses of the pro prosperity gospel but nor am I into the poverty gospel and I would say that uh, probably a lot of us as British people are into the poverty gospel we've got a poverty mindset 
uh, as a nation, I think uh, Anglicans, we, as a denomination, we, we have it particularly bad, I think. And, uh, but, um, uh, so I'm not, I'm not advocating uh, for poverty. Poverty isn't a virtue. There's no poverty um, in heaven. Uh, but grace is not for sale. And religion, uh, Christianity, is not a money-making endeavour. Obsession with money brings greed. But obsession with prayer can bring supernatural results. And here's a, another quotation from Dr. Luther uh, himself. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, um, but laying hold of his willingness. And so uh, with that thought ringing in our mind, let's take a break. And uh, let me, I'll pray. I'll pray us into the break, seeing as a good, good, uh, it's a good point to pause. I'm going to take a 15-minute um, break now. And uh, so let's just pray. So, Father, we thank you for uh, the truth of your word. Lord, we thank you that as we look on this ancient document, now 500 years old, even though it's obviously written in a historical context, and, uh, and even though we can see that Luther uh, was still in, in some ways bound by his own um, medieval Catholic context, particularly at this stage, Lord, we can see the seeds of the Reformation here. And we can see, Father... Um, truths uh, that Luther recovered 500 years ago, but we can see uh, truths that we need to rediscover today, things that the contemporary church is in danger of forgetting. And so, Lord, shake us out of our spiritual amnesia, our theological amnesia, uh, we pray. We thank you for this statement, Lord, that uh, to pray is not overcoming your reluctance, but it's laying hold of your willingness. Thank you that you are so more willing to listen than we are to pray. And so, uh, Father, we uh, pray uh, that your kingdom come, your will might be done in and through us. And, Lord, we recognise uh, obsession with money brings greed, but obsession with prayer can bring supernatural results. So, Lord, may we be a people obsessed with prayer. May this church be obsessed with prayer. May, as individuals, we be obsessed with prayer. The denominations that we represent, may they be obsessed with prayer. Uh, Lord, we recognise it's... it's uh, uh, the Christian's vital breath. And, uh, and so we pray afresh uh, today. Uh, Lord Jesus, as you taught us to, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. And we pray this in your name. Amen. <laughs>